This is Framerate, brought to you by Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Framerate, your Patreon-exclusive film review show. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. And here we are again uh, to discuss a very exciting film, a film that Patrick was like, Jamie, need to go see. And then I had like people texting me saying, Patrick told me to tell you to go see uh, <laughs> Godzilla Minus One, which is the film we're here to discuss. Yeah. Uh, and what a film it is. This for many, I know personally, many of you listening to this are huge Godzilla fans. I know that because you have texted, been texting me about this since it came out, because I'm also a huge Godzilla fan. This is something that I think uh, is in a lot of ways a, a watershed moment, especially for Japanese cinema in the United States. I think I want to say that right off the bat. It's broken, you know, all sorts of box office records in terms of a Japanese domestic film premiering in the U.S. But it also, I think, has given us a really authentic look into the ways in which Japanese culture holds Godzilla, which is to say he's not just a monster and he's not just an interesting force of nature. He's essentially a god. And I think we got a lot of that with Shin Godzilla, which we'll talk about a little bit today, which was a, another landmark in its own right. But what we get with Minus One is a truly fantastical vision of a god who is you know, vengeful and is returning to exact vengeance on a society that, as the title implies, was already at zero, because this takes place in the immediate aftermath of World War II, when Japanese civilization was essentially at a standstill, people were living in camps, much of the country was irradiated. It was a period of not even reconstruction, this is pre-reconstruction Japan. And at that zero baseline, a vengeful god comes from the ocean to pull them down even farther. So I'm maybe the newest Godzilla fan in this podcast. No, Jamie, even more so. Okay. No, I've seen some Godzilla films, but I'm not like, I'm just like, eh, whatever. After minus one, I am a fucking fan. (laughs) So what happened for me was uh, Patrick was raving about this movie. So it was on my mind and I was thinking about taking my kids to it. And my youngest and I were in a bookstore and we found a volume of Godzilla comic books done by, um, I'm losing his name, the, the guy that did... Um, James Stoko. James Stoko, yes, yes. And I, and I remember, Patrick, even on the show, I believe you talked about uh, Godzilla in Hell. And here it was. And so I'm saying to my son, Stellan, look, you know, here's, here's Godzilla. And it's like Dante's Inferno. And, and we're looking at it. And just from that, he got interested. And when and he's got laser focus. It's part of, of having autism. So suddenly, I'm finding him up early in the morning searching on hulu or netflix or whatever to see what godzilla films there were and so with him i watched the first the two first original ones the godzilla all the japanese you know not um not the uh perry mason version and then um godzilla raids again i think it was called it was the second one anyway and so he wanted to go see uh godzilla minus one my oldest son was worried that it was going to be too emotional which is interesting and he was right but i still wish he'd seen it with me so we're working our way through the color Godzilla films now. Oh, but I just wanted to say, 
besides obviously watching the the original Godzilla, I think that's a really important thing to see the, the original Japanese film. There is an Errol Morris documentary called The Fog of War oh, about yeah. yeah, about um what America did to Japan before we dropped the the warheads on them or the atomic bombs, I mean. Uh, just the amount of destruction through traditional bombing and firebombing that was done, because that plays a role in this film. What we're seeing is not Hiroshima or Nagasaki. We're seeing Japanese cities that were leveled with conventional weaponry. And having that knowledge and um, that American perspective, a, a very remorseful perspective, I think was helpful going into this movie, because it, it is challenging to to see this material and to understand this perspective when what we're raised with is the Japanese were the enemy, the Japanese were the aggressors. So for me, I mean, I, I remember seeing Godzilla films, black and white Godzilla films when I was a kid back in 1920. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they didn't, I was a big fan of Spectre Man, which I'm sure, did you watch those Christian? You remember Spectre or Ultraman? Ultraman. Ultraman. What's the the Spectre Man? You never heard of Spectre Man? No. Spectre Man's another strange. Yes. Really? Um, But I watched Ultraman. I watched Voltron, which comes from uh, anime. And I was a big fan of that. But I tried to watch Godzilla as a kid. I was like, this is stupid. But I was, it wasn't stupid. I was just too young to really understand what I was seeing. You know, you see this big monster, which was obviously a man in a suit, you know, running through very obvious miniatures and then they cut to or composite in Japanese people running, which became a bit of a cliche in America. Um, I think as the years progressed to, to our detriment, to America's detriment, where they turned it into a cliche, like, look, look, like just making light of something that you don't make light of. Um, of course, most famously, I think in 98, that Godzilla film with uh, Matthew, Matthew Broderick. Broderick came out <laughs> and I saw that. I was excited to see that. That was ridiculous. I don't even remember anything about that. I mean, I remember a few things here or there, but what they did do with Godzilla is they kept Godzilla a vengeful God. They kept Godzilla kind of true to his nature. And then as the years progressed, what does America do? And I've had this conversation with Patrick recently in light of seeing minus one is We've made Godzilla into this, oh, no, he's good. He's here to help us. We took this thing that was essentially analogous to a bomb, to destruction, and we've turned it into this weapon that we could use, which is what America does. And seeing Minus One and seeing Godzilla within the the correct context, I see things like Monarch and... Um, which is the series on Apple, which is very middling at best. I did finish it just because I was interested to see where it went. Um, it's not true to who Godzilla is and it, true to the lore and why Godzilla was created. So that's kind of my entry into the like true Godzilla lore. I haven't seen Shin Godzilla. I haven't seen the colors. I don't, one, I don't, ones, I'm not sure what you're referencing there, but minus one really floored me and i was very emotional by the end of it i didn't expect to be i heard patrick saying how poetic it was and wrongly i scoffed you at made you a fun bit, of me for that you did, did a laugh emoji jamie and i apologize um <laughs> it's okay um because i think how poetic can a godzilla film be like come on um probably much like you view fantasy like this is ridiculous you know um which too many means, horses there's just too many horses maybe. like <laughs> too much magic yeah um but I, by the end of uh, Godzilla minus one, I was an emotional wreck, and I really understood. Certainly, in light of Oppenheimer, 
seeing the correlation there, seeing the context of that, these films came out, they were really timed well, and it was probably just by accident, but um, it was pretty amazing. Just to that end about Godzilla's changing nature in film, we've, we've actually done, we did a King of the Monsters frame rate, and you might not have been on that, Jamie, but when it came out a few years ago, I think I was maybe with Dan, maybe Dave Gogol, a couple of people, but um, so we have talked about Godzilla a little bit here. So I want, and you know, in the interest of time, I don't want to get hugely into it, but what's interesting about Godzilla is the nature in which he's portrayed on film really reveals a lot about the fears of a given time period. Right. And this is not, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the recent Hollywood films, the 2014 and King of the Monsters were not the first time Godzilla has been portrayed, of course, as an ally. For much of the Showa era, which are, you know, when you have a lot of the team-up movies, a lot of the versus films, a lot of that, he was basically this, like, avenging hero for Earth. He might not have done it, you know, and he, he didn't, like, swoop in like a superhero, but what would happen would, you know, some huge smog monster, for example, would appear, and Godzilla would kick its ass, and, you know, people would clap, and then Godzilla would go back into the ocean and, like, walk around buildings so he didn't break them, you know. And, uh, you, I mean, you get great films out of that as well. Like for two of my favorite Godzilla films ever, one of them uh, being Bailanti in the late eighties and the other one being Destroya, which is the early night, early nineties. Uh, you know, you can see how that form can really work well. Like there can be great filmmaking that comes out of the idea of Godzilla being in some ways an ally, but as Christian was mentioning with the original Honda film from 1954, Godzilla is clearly not an ally in that movie whatsoever. And that was made by a culture who was still actively recovering from, you know, an atomic holocaust, essentially. So, the you know, it's it's pretty obvious what that's supposed to represent, right? What's interesting, though, is that in 2016, and again, I'm, I'm going to be referring a lot to those three films, to the, to the 1954 Honda film, the original one, uh, not Perry Mason, the 19, or the uh, 2016 Shin Godzilla, and then 2023's Godzilla minus one, because they all exist in their own continuities and you don't necessarily need to watch anything else to understand them. They're all kind of independent films. Uh, in 2016, we have Shin Godzilla come out and the horror in that is so interesting because it's bureaucratic. It's like so different from any other Godzilla film. In Shin Godzilla, you have the most probably even more so than minus one, the most godlike I mean, the name Shin can be translated to mean God in Japanese, among other things. The most godlike Godzilla, who just does not even register us as anything other than things to step on and to, you know, get rid of. Uh, you know, no humanity. There's no empathy in it. It's just, it's just a force of the ocean come to life to just destroy. Uh, and the the Tokyo, which it's attacking, is totally immobilized because the bureaucrats can't decide on what to do in response to this threat. So a lot of Shin Godzilla takes place in boardrooms and it becomes this interesting, you know, thriller, almost like a political thriller about how to cut through red tape to try to respond to a disaster that's actively happening. So the horror in Shin Godzilla reveals a lot about what we were afraid of in the mid 2000s, I think. Now, the horror in Minus One, of course, takes us back to this idea of what happens when we are already decimated. And when I was watching it, I couldn't help but think somewhat of COVID-19 and how the world essentially had stopped for the first time in my lifetime. And um, although thankfully we were never reduced to that, you know, absolute apocalyptic baseline that Japan was in after World War II, I think many of us felt for the first time like something like that could actually happen. And uh, so the ways in which things are quiet and the ways in which things have stopped completely, a lot of those, they, they, they've they made me feel interesting things about myself post you know, COVID-19 pandemic. 
so that's not to reduce it to a COVID narrative, which it's not, but just to sort of say that I, I think the things that we're thinking about and the things that we're afraid about are unique somewhat to this time period. And minus one really plays into that beautifully. One other thing I want to say briefly uh, is, you know, Christian, you brought up a great point about how the narrative is Japan was the evil aggressor, which, you know, to be fair to history is mostly accurate in, the, in terms of the Pacific theater of World War II. And they did absolutely atrocious things to the world. But uh, one of the, the the most like visible ways of talking about that is the attack on Pearl Harbor, right? Like we are all shown that this happened on December 7th, 1941. And we are shown that all these kamikaze pilots had, you know, flown willfully into the battleships in Hawaii. And uh, the idea of having a, a suicide pilot, a kamikaze pilot be the protagonist of this story was really interesting for me from the very beginning. Uh, for a number of reasons that we'll get to. And what I love is that the film starts, do you guys remember what the establishing shot of the film is? Like the first thing you see? It's the plane flying in, right? Yeah. You don't even see the plane flying in. You just see landing gear, right? Yes. You're just given like a, a maybe a 90 second uninterrupted shot of wheels touching down shakily on the ground. And I've talked to a few people about this scene so far who have just, we've been texting about it. Something I love about that is that First off, it signals to the audience that that Takashi Yamazaki, the filmmaker uh, who directed this movie, trusts us a lot to make, uh, you know, to to be able to draw our own conclusions from what we're watching and to not have to rush through things. So, you know, as we're watching that sequence, we notice a few things. One, the time period. This looks like, you know, a 40s war plane. We notice that it's landing on what is definitely not an actual runway, or at least it's a disused runway. And then we notice as we're watching it unfold that there's an armament right behind the landing gear. And we put all these things together and we're like, what, what is this? What is this plane doing? And by the time it's revealed that the reason there's an armament on it is because he never deployed it because he was unable to do so. We just begin with this place of empathy and uh, subjectivity that I think informs the way the rest of the film unfolds in a really beautiful way. And it kind of encourages us, it draws us in to look more deeply into what we're seeing. And that same attention to detail, as I mentioned to both of you, is really, it's just resonant throughout the entire film. The set design in this movie is just the most beautifully, like the, the attention that they put into getting things accurate to the time period, into getting the stitching right on the costumes, onto making sure that every camera angle was just rife with with beauty and and you know and layers of meaning, uh, and as I said to you both, the the shack that we spend a lot of the film in, at least the early parts of the film, I mean that is just the most realistic looking, most beautiful. There's a story behind every single object in that place, and um, and that is really great filmmaking. So I said this to Patrick, and I might have even said it in the in the in our main discussion group with uh, the PO team. Watching 
minus one felt like the rebirth of cinema in some ways and maybe that's a, an overestimation i'm not really sure but i felt like i was sitting in a theater in the 1950s watching a movie for the first time um or experiencing cinema for the first time there's something so effortless and beautiful about it and to your points patrick the attention to detail the authenticness of the characters and this isn't Minus One is not a modern film at all. There is no like sex in it. There's no cursing in it. Not to say that those things make a film modern or bad or whatever. Not at all. Um, this felt like pure cinema. It was pure visual storytelling. And it was also storytelling that came from really wonderful characters. And uh, you mentioned that the protagonist of the film is a kamikaze pilot. And it reminded me of Empire of the Sun, which is Steven Spielberg's, I think, masterpiece, an underrated masterpiece starring Christian Bale, which takes place during the middle of World War II. And there's a, a moment in Empire of the Sun where he befriends this kamikaze um, pilot who cannot complete his mission because his plane doesn't work. So automatically, automatically I was referencing this and how powerful that might be for a character to have this he has his honor he has his duty and he cannot do it and in the case of minus one he can't do it because he believes he's a coward when in fact and we can get to this later and it's a beautiful arc for the character what he thought was honor and duty wasn't wasn't honor and duty and i just loved that i loved the tension in him that that war going on inside him that war i mean there, his country was at war, but there was a war inside of him as well. And to see that portrayed so beautifully, so lyrically, um, what that does to people. And it was a construct, too. It had nothing to do with honor and duty. It was what these people taught, told him was honor and duty. And if you don't do that, you failed your country. And then when he gets back to was what is ostensibly his old neighborhood, which is in shambles, there's a, a woman who's still there who berates him for not fulfilling his duty, that maybe her sons would have lived or one of her children might have lived if he would have fulfilled his duty. So it's compounded. To see that in a movie, to see that complexity, I don't see that in movies very often. I don't see the kind of time they give to let these stories unfold. And it also reminded me of there's a big resurgence of Asian cinema, and I'll, I'll, I'll use a popular film, which is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the amount of time spent on these characters to let them live and breathe, to become full-bodied characters, does not happen in American films. It Because American films are like, let's cut, let's cut, let's move, let's move. So I every moment of Minus One was a little bit of a miracle for me. The effortless way of introducing indelible characters just floored me. I'm sitting in the theater watching this and that moment with the woman, that could have been her entire arc. She's just there to voice what was already inside him. He feels like a failure. He feels like he let his country down. Obviously, him killing himself wouldn't have saved anybody, but that was the perception and she she says it. And then she doesn't go away. And she's there for the rest of the film. And the, the beauty of their relationship and how as more people are added to this family almost... Um, there are multiple times where someone defiantly says, I don't want to see you. I don't want to do this, whatever. Cut to five years later and there they are together still, you know? Um, 
the the guys that are on the boat with him, they're, he ends up in this job clearing mines left over from the war. And we're given such beautiful shorthand of who these people are that sums them up without reducing them. And they and, and then they they get to to live and breathe. And I don't know. I just I have not seen that kind of um that kind of character development play out so wonderfully and never slow the story down. There's never that moment of, well, Bob, let me tell you about in the war, blah, blah, blah. It's they don't want to talk about the war. They don't want to talk about what had happened before. And yet what happened before is coming to get them. You know, the whole thing is this, this, the personification of trauma and the moment people have, have um, compared it, of course, to Jaws, which I think is very smart of the final boat confrontation with Jaws. There's a very similar scene with this boat and Godzilla. And of course, we're going to spoil this movie. Obviously, we should have said that up front, but and Godzilla is coming at them and our main character is at the gun and he's firing and I don't know how it, it was the most raw emotional experience watching this happen. Um, and I know that we're only halfway through the movie. I was very aware of the conventions of storytelling in this film. And even though at the end, the movie gets a little bit, it makes some choices that in, in lesser hands, I would be rolling my eyes at, but I 100% accepted everything that they gave me. Even, even when certain very emotional moments are undone by a later revelation. I don't care. It earned it. It earned everything. And so in that moment, I, I, fu I fully believe that, the, that our main characters were going to get swallowed up by Godzilla just because the scene was so tense and so scary. When Godzilla climbs onto that battleship that you think is there to rescue them, this is it. The, the, the ship's going to save them. And I was, I was in tears for the loss of these little minuscule CGI people on a ship. You know, there just was no sense of spectacle, it was the sense of tragedy, if that makes sense. I, I agree with so much of what you're both saying about this. I, I want to uh, come back to the boat in a second, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit about character development because that's something that I know is close to all of our hearts, Jamie, more than anyone. But I think it's something that we all really look for in great films and in great you know art. The ways characters are given room to develop in this movie, I, it reminds me most of Aliens, honestly, of, of anything. Like the, They all have such agency and life and depth and a great example of that is the head engineer character uh you know from the from the the initial i'm sorry i'm forgetting some of the details about where you know the initial confrontation that we see in the film happened but you know we have this guy who has this enormous vendetta against our protagonist koichi so the whole movie we are kind of prepared for some showdown to happen and what i love is that he so koichi is able to convince the engineer to help him but by speaking in the language of the engineer, which is revenge by basically saying, come and punch me and come and punch me and let's do this together. And I love how he tricks him into doing it. And then eventually that engineer not only works with him, but saves his life. He gives him the out that he deserved the entire time that he wishes he could go back to all the kamikaze pilots and give them a second chance, give them the ejection seat, right? 
that I found, I, I mean, I was, I was crying for so much of this movie, but that was a huge part because you realize that there are some things about the human spirit that transcend war. And that I think is a really hard thing to convey. The characters though, throughout the whole thing, like Christian, you're so right. The boat ride, like I felt so fucking attached to, the, to those people in, in six minutes of screen time, like the ways that humor worked in that environment, the ways they're giving each other crap and the ways in which Koichi, who was directionless, rudderless, literally uh, and figuratively and felt like he had no purpose in life anymore does one thing well which is he fires this gun and blows a mine up and that like unlocks something for him and it doesn't unlock it quickly because he's still just completely a wreck for most of the film in terms of his insecurity this imposter syndrome that he's living with but he has these moments where not only is he able to do something productive but he's celebrated for it by other people and those things add up so that by the end of the movie, when we do get those Hollywoodish moments where things resolve neatly, it feels like a victory for us. Like it feels like that's the human spirit. It feels earned. And what I love, Jamie, what you keep saying, which I so much agree with, is that this film does not feel like a contemporary movie at all. And I, I've been wrestling with that because I, I think about this movie all the time. I mean, I, I'm probably going to see it once more before it leaves theaters. I'm trying to think about like why that why that is and why it doesn't feel naive because there are naive aspects to it right like it has a, a, about as happy ending a, a, as a film like this could possibly have as we have a little bit of a credits sequence that you know throws some shadow in there but like we have you know he survives the daughter is able to you know which that's a whole other story is able to survive his you know partner survives like the people that were really attached to make it through this thing unscathed and we have this family unit we have ripley newton hicks back together again at the end of this film um and yet it doesn't feel stupid like it feels it feels like we earned it you know i mean everybody in the theater when so you have the head engineer who's instructing first off that fucking prototype warplane is like the coolest plane i've seen in forever. Like I'm obsessed with the one that he flew into Godzilla at the end. Um, we had the head engineer talking to Koichi about like the, you know, what's going on with the cockpit and everybody knows when it pans away and they get the fade dissolved that there's going to be an ejection seat. Cause he's, you know, pointing to the German label and it's, it's clear what's going on. Right. And so I knew that. And instead of having the reaction that I have to every other time something gets telegraphed, I cried. I was like, oh my God, he's going to save his life. Like, this is how this is going to happen. Because everybody going into that final confrontation with Godzilla is just praying that this little girl is not going to have her new father figure ripped away from her because she has lived through so much loss. And we are just desperate. Like, we are desperate for that not to happen. And when it doesn't, it's such an emotional catharsis. I've heard from so many people, and I, I don't even mean just the you know Godzilla fans that I talk with all the time who are listening to this, but family members who saw this, who said I, the whole theater was crying in the end of the movie, like we could hear people shuddering around them, and it was because we needed, like we need that in an in an era where things feel dejected and cynical and jaded, where we feel defeated by so many things happening in the world, to get a story that takes us on that journey where it validates that experience so much, and it shows us how this is not new like people have felt helpless and hopeless so many times throughout history and it gives us time to feel that and then gives us some genuine earned redemption out at the end there was something like incredibly cathartic about that and that's why this film is great for it i also want to say one other thing 
the the musical score to this thing is my favorite score of the year. It's one of my favorite scores of the decade, honestly. This was uh, composed by Naoki Sato, who's a composer I've never heard anything else before from. But the the music to this movie is otherworldly. I have been listening to this soundtrack so much and i really recommend other people who enjoyed the film do the same thing it is the least predictable the least predictable godzilla soundtrack ever of course you know we have the the um the original theme that pops up in a couple of places because it's a godzilla film by toho totally get it it's a great theme that's fine but most of the film is so unexpected it's this beautiful reverent dreamlike scoring that um and it happens during moments of terror too. Like there's this disembodied almost like, it's almost like, uh, you know, Christian, you were talking about Dread, the film uh, from 2012, which I love also. Uh, you know that when they do the drug in that movie and the music gets slowed down and it's like, you know, 0.17% of the actual duration of the score. Um, it's almost like that. Like it's like the music gets time stretched and it becomes this sort of like, it's it's it feels out of time. It feels like a it feels holy, almost like you're in the presence of something, you know, something godlike. And I think that's what's so interesting about this film. Um, also, it shows that Sato trusts uh, the uh, Yamazaki enough to know that Yamazaki's kinetic energy will carry enough momentum where the music doesn't have to slam you in the face with it over and over again. And that elevate it gives them, it, it liberates the music to be its own thing which is this beautiful emotional undercurrent so yeah i, I really i feel like this is actually an important film score i, I really want to say that like i think this is an important work of film scoring that i really hope people learn from and listen to And again, it's why this does not feel like Hollywood, you know? It does not feel telegraphed. It doesn't feel predictable. It feels continually surprising. And and it's this sort of surprise that settles over you like a hot bath. It's just this beautiful sense of like, wow, why didn't I think of that? You know? Ah, oh, so good. In terms of that out of time feel, and you're you're saying that you're kind of figure trying to understand like why doesn't this film feel contemporary enough? Here's my answer, and I think maybe this answer will be different for everyone, but modern films, even some of the best ones, they are very aware of their audience. They're very like, wink, wink, look at this, anticipating this, oh, we're going to foreshadow this, we're going to foreshadow that. There's not really any foreshadowing in this film. I fucking hate foreshadowing. I hate it. Because what does foreshadowing do? It dumb. It, it assumes the audience is stupid. It assumes that we need to tell the audience again that something's going to happen. It's filmmakers not trusting audiences. But more than filmmakers, it's studios not trusting audiences. Minus one didn't really have any foreshadowing. Now, there's a couple things that I could predict in the end. I kind of figured that um, the woman who perished during that big, huge attack would appear. I wasn't sure, but I kind of thought she probably would. It just felt a little not dishonorable to her character, but just felt like Un- unfinished. She felt unfinished as a character and for him to have suffered more loss. I was like, he's been through too much. So when she reappeared, I, fu- I felt like she was, but even though I kind of predicted it, it felt new. 
There was just so much trust that the filmmakers gave to the audience to say, you know what? We respect you. We respect you enough that you can sit through this movie. And there are very, and I think other people might call them slow moments, but I call them character moments. They give characters time to live and breathe, which I think some of the best films of our youth and even some of the films that are, you know, that we love that come out today, which are, you know, few and far between films like Annihilation or films like Under the Skin or um, Silence or Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a very long film. They're giving us time to fully experience these characters. And I really think to have a Godzilla film do this takes this film out of time. It takes this film back to when filmmaking was new or newer and people were experiencing and everything was an event. And that's what minus one has become. It's become a, a version of Oppenheimer and Barbie where it's an event thing and people are going and there, you can see write-ups in the trades about minus one. And these writers are like, what's going on here? What's happening here? Because something's happening. Something's happening to audiences where they're like, you know, we've had our fill of Marvel. We've had our fill of, and not to say that there aren't great films there, um, but that's a style of filmmaking. I think people are realigning or, or I don't know. I don't know, but something's going on with audiences where we are ready to sit back and experience character. We are ready to sit back and let auteurs tell us a story without needing a cut every five seconds. And uh, that's the only way that I can explain this. And maybe that's a pedestrian explanation. And I'm still trying to figure that out as well. Um, but I'm going to jump to something else. And, uh, that I alluded to, but certainly the film I'm alluding it to it because the film alluded to it in terms of the war going on in Koichi. We're towards the end of the film. Uh, what what's the woman's name? I can't remember her name. Noriko. Nor Noriko. Okay. Well, before I get to that moment, what I love, 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 love about their relationship is it would in 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 lesser hands they would have been a couple right away they would have been love there would have been kissing maybe a sex scene something they were a couple they've adopted a daughter that never happens in this movie what you think is going to happen what you expect to happen because it always happens they become friends and she sees his kind of closed he's closed off he's emotionally closed off and she sees this and she picks up on this and it draws her nearer to him and it's this beautiful relationship between opposite sex people that is a relationship that is a friendship that is a family that is trust and there's no sexual tension between them and but on the outside of that you see his friends saying why aren't you marrying her what you know they're expecting that they're like well what's going on here what look at this girl you know is this her daughter they make all of these assumptions about who they might be and that is never where they in the intimacy between them that we can see as an audience you never see that. And that is a beautiful thing you never see in movies. Never, ever see him. And to reference Aliens, there was a little bit maybe flirtation that you see between Ripley and Hicks, but they never go there. They never do what you expect them to do. That's what great filmmakers do when James Cameron was a great filmmaker. Um, it was, uh, And then towards the end, she asks him the most beautiful question. She says, is the war over? And she is referencing the war inside of him. And that I like started crying when she asked him that question, because 
that's the human experience. There's wars going on inside of us. Um, just, you know, and we're constantly mitigating those and finding out who we are, who are we? And, um, who, where, where's our place in this world? And that's Koichi's question. Where does he belong in this world that expected him to die? And, and one beautiful moment among many beautiful moments is when all of the, the men are in that building and they're talking about, and this is towards the end of the film. And I can't remember the character, but he's a prominent character within that community. He's like, we haven't, he says, we haven't respected life enough. And it's this moment where Japanese culture realizes that these kamikaze were sacrificing our young men, and we should not have done that. That was dishonoring life, and we need to honor life. That, oh my God, like that, that, that was the movie for me. I mean, that amongst so much death, they understood life. They understood the value of life, and it took them so, it took them a lot to get to that point, and it's just beautiful. That moment when the scientist makes the the pledge, let's try to have nobody die. Let's all try to get out of this. And I, yeah, that, that caught me off guard. I didn't expect that. I thought as we fight to the last man, we all sacrifice everything to save, you know, the, the greater good or whatever. But no, <laughs> what if we did this without killing ourselves? Wouldn't that be nice? But the moment that also sticks with me is when Noriko is preparing soup with their adopted daughter and they're, they're talking about adding the radish. And it was almost like a, a Miyazaki uh, moment of what are we doing in the middle of a Godzilla film? Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, one of my best friends in, in elementary school was big on Godzilla and had all the toys and would smash them together at recess, you know. And so that was going into a lot of this. That was my impression. It's it's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, right? Or the um, the Beastie Boys music video where they've they're they're sort of spoofing um, for Intergalactic. So in, to instead be given these little moments of um, male camaraderie or, uh, or or cooking or folding things or just all these beautiful little moments that are that are worth living for and to have this character and I don't know why I don't know why he resonated so much with me but the idea of someone who can't enjoy the the his incredible good fortune of being alive after a terrible event, he's alive, but he is holding on to so much guilt and trauma. It's his war. And, and, and it's, it's as though that's what Godzilla is. Obviously Godzilla is a much larger thing than a single person, but for this movie, okay. This important thing to understand about Christian Matska is I hate when the monster dies in films. It's my least favorite part of every monster film. I hate it in Lord of the Rings when they kill the, tra the, the cave troll, right? That's who I am. I have never wanted a monster dead as much as I wanted the, the Godzilla in this film because he scared me. I was so scared and it was the beauty of the angles that they shot him from and the, the, the brevity of his presence too. They don't, he doesn't hang out. He's not lingering. I just, it was amazing. And I, and I wanted him gone. So just such a triumph at the end. The ways that they shot Godzilla in this film, which of course is actually in the final product is completely CG is so effective when he is following the boat, like Christian, you and I have sent this back and forth, some screen prints of this thing. Uh, like that is an iconic cinema image. That is so scary. 
And it's been a long time since I have felt like that about Godzilla. And this is, you know, as as we've been over, like I've been a huge fan of his for my whole life. I subscribe to G Fan magazine. I collect the, you know, everything. Like I have not been scared of him the way that I was scared of him in this movie, really since I was a child in my grandma's den watching the original film and thinking it was real. Like that's the last time I was this scared. It's also a testament. So, you know, my children are 10 and 7. They sat through this whole thing rapturously. Both of them cried in it too. Um, and this was a subtitled movie in Japanese and and a very slow film, quote unquote, in many sequences. And they didn't care about the slow. They loved, they ate that right up the same way they eat up the Miyazaki films, right? And I think that that says a lot about, you know, we don't probably don't give audiences of all ages enough credit for what they can actually pay attention to. But also I think part of it is because the way Godzilla is deployed throughout this movie is so impactful that even though it's short, it's really unforgettable. Of course, after the plane landing sequence, within a few minutes, we are treated to probably the single most violent appearance of Godzilla I've ever seen. We see him as this juvenile, you know, I guess he's not, he's like ancient. So I don't know if he's juvenile, but he's, you know, pre mutated dinosaur like Godzilla who comes on shore and just rips people in half. And it is so violent and scary. And like, it really, I have not felt like that about CG at all since the original Jurassic park came out. That's the only thing I can compare it to. It felt like I was watching something real. Um, <clears throat> What's amazing is that it's all CG, and that's something that has traditionally been kind of crapped on in the Godzilla community. Shin Godzilla from 2016, of course, uh, you know, the look of Godzilla, we see him in three different evolutionary forms in that film, and they're all so interesting and beautiful and absolutely terrifying. Shin Godzilla really is a horror film, first and foremost. But that was supposed to be primarily suit work or suitmation. And they couldn't get the suit to look right, so they ended up CGing over most of it and then just doing new CG. And you can tell because the CG doesn't hold up great. Like it looks, it looks good, but it looks like you're watching a movie. And this one, the the CG looks so freaking real the whole time. It really like my, I was not straining my believability at all for any of his appearances. Maybe even most more of all when he comes on land finally. And we see him actually moving, you know, through the world uh, out of the water. And we see how cumbersome to, it would be to be that heavy because in the water, he moves like all like a, a picture of blue whale walking on bipedal legs. Right. It would be a disaster because it's just too big. Like gravity weighs on it too much. And so many films, I think, including recent Godzilla movies like Godzilla vs. Kong, which I thought was a travesty, which came out a couple of years ago treat Godzilla like he weighs 130 pounds, you know, and he, he might be slow because of our frame of reference, but like he can, he can jump and he can dive and he can kick things. God's if Godzilla actually weighed as incalculably much as he would need to, to sustain that kind of body mass, like he would be essentially an immovable, he'd be like a mountain trying to navigate the world. And we see that in this movie, we see how, how painful it would be for him to try to get out of the water, which is why that's where he spends almost all of his time. But when he does come on land, he's essentially an unstoppable force majeure who you just have to somehow survive until he's gone again. There's not really much you can do about it. And I've heard, I've had interesting conversations like with Dan Ferlito about this, for example, where we're kind of talking about how cumbersome he was on land and if that works or not. I think it really does for a couple of reasons. One is they put so much care into mimicking the suitmation technique, uh, the way that those suits walked, which is an iconic thing in film. So we all like, even if you haven't really seen those movies, you know what that looks like, you know what the tail looks like, you know what it looks like when the various actors are walking in it. Um, so there's like this kind of believability from that angle because we have a reference in our own mind for what Godzilla looks like when he's walking. And he doesn't, he doesn't walk like a T-Rex, he walks like something else. Um, but it also, I think, works because it gives us time to appreciate the 
majestic terror that something that big would cause. And I, I just think it feels full of wonderment to me in the same way, you know, like Steven Spielberg's films feel full of wonderment. Um, so I, I really want to call that out and just to give credit to them for doing such a beautiful job making Godzilla into something that's not just cool and not just fun and not just creepy, but is something um, it feels like it feels like a legend has come to life and like we weren't supposed to see it, but we did. And it's too late to do anything about it now. And that's so hard to capture. One thing I'd like to reference, um, and all characters in this film, the human characters, and this is something you do not see again. It's just really was poignant to me and sticks with me. And I think about not one character in this film is a bad guy. Everyone is fraught with emotion. Um, they're being pulled in different ways. There's idea of what you should do and duty and honor. Um, even the, the character that Koichi was really at odds with, the mechanic guy, and you understood where he was coming from. You understood his anger. And that, again, beautifully displays human nature um, that most, for the most part, certainly we have in this world, we have some bad players. We have some uh, bad characters in po politics and other circles, for sure. We can always identify those. But generally, even some people we might disagree with um, inherently, their politics, some of their life choices, they're not, quote unquote, bad people. They've made different choices, and oftentimes those choices are fueled by trauma. Those choices are fueled by by hurt and pain, um, and Godzilla Minus One really beautifully displays that, um, that everyone's coming from their own perspective. That's how you portray humans, that you're coming from your own journey, and that doesn't mean... And maybe you have a, maybe, you know, maybe you're negative Nancy, maybe, maybe you're a, you know, maybe you're overly positive like I am, or, you know, naively positive, naively optimistic, but all of that comes from a, a very specific place and to not judge that and to take them for who they are and to see that, see beyond that, which is what this film allows us to do. It allows us to see these people beyond their trauma. That is art. That is a wonderful thing. And I want to jump to uh, what you guys were talking about in terms of Godzilla the monster. It fucking scared me to death. That look, those eyes in the water, swimming with the tail. Um, to see this creature that I know that they were there were some man in suit moments. And Patrick and I discussed this a little bit. I think some, some leg movements that they used um, or some tail swipes or something where they kind of re they reconstruct some of that early godzilla tech from like the 40s or the 50s um but to see this thing that was obviously i don't know it wasn't a man in soup and it was cgi and but to be so terrifying i wasn't expecting that like to be terrified of this thing swimming in the water and i don't know how they did that i don't know how they scared me but i want to your point christian i wanted this thing fucking dead um and there's this uh Godzilla, at least from my perspective, and as I, you know, I want to watch Shin Godzilla next. Like I'm, I want to like deep dive into this now. Like this is how excited I am, and that's how. Well, I probably I don't think much of Monarch because they've lost the spirit of these creatures. They've lost the spirit of the context. Not to say that you can't take these characters and do something other with them. For sure you can, but Godzilla really represents some really heavy trauma. Um, the trauma of war and what war will do and the trauma of destruction, almost like Godzilla is this weapon. Um, it is this weapon that man has created because I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, they awaken him. Or no, so when we first see him, he's on an island and he's smaller. But something's awakened this thing. But it's at the hands of man. Um, and I really feel like that's what is at the heart of this is, yes, they want to kill this beast, but this is of our own creation. And the only way that we could do this is if we could see ourselves for who we are and find our hope and work together. And that's another motif in the film is everyone's fractured. Everyone's coming at, how do we kill this thing from different perspectives? And no one's agreeing initially. And people are saying, that's a stupid idea. And why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And then something happens. Something happens between them and they start trusting each other more. And it's so beautiful. And I, I can barely even talk about this film without euphoria. I don't know what this film has done to me, but it's done something really powerful. And I, I, I can't really explain it, but it is a, it is a, it is a film that the world needs right now. And I hope more people see it. left the theaters up here in Maine two days after I saw it. So I'm just praying that it gets a re-release around awards season or, or something because it was, it was a 10 out of 10. It was the best picture I saw last year. And I did not ever expect that to be um, what I'd be saying. What a strange year for movies though. Um, the D and D movie turned out to be delightful. The Barbie movie was fantastic. Like what I, I didn't see a single Marvel Marvel movie that I really truly enjoyed for the first time. And that includes across the Spider-Verse. I'm very sorry. I, I don't care for that film. But How when I know when when, uh, you know, a Japanese rubber monster movie and a, an American plastic Barbie doll movie are are vying in my brain for top spot. That's a that's a very strange year. Well, what a year indeed, huh? Um <clears throat> So I, I know we can kind of wrap now. I, I have to say, just to call out something Jamie said, I, I really have had like chills this whole time, which is so funny as we're talking about this. I don't think I've ever had that on a frame rate before. I've never felt this sense of like chills. That, but that's what this movie does. I don't, there's something magical about this thing. And just to to you know what we've said tonight, I, I really hope that people see it while they still can. It's still playing in a couple theaters near here, um, and it's going to be re-released in Japan as of now in black and white. And again, it's going to be getting like the Mad Max um, black and chrome tr uh, treatment here. So it's not just like a, it's not just a, a filter put onto the original film, but they actually shot it in a ways where they're going to use the data to create an authentic black and white version. I really hope that gets put out here because I will see that shit 
very many times. And, uh, and just when it comes out on streaming and, and on, uh, you know, I, I, physical media, I can't wait. There's a reason why the original Godzilla film is in the Criterion collection. And there's a reason why they have the collected films of the first, you know, 20 or 30 years of it also collected as a beautiful box set in Criterion. Godzilla has within it the potential to be one of the great vehicles for storytelling that we have access to. There's a reason why it's transcended so many different things over time and become one of the true modern legends that we have access to. And it's amazing when you can have a film come out that still manages to surprise us with that and still manages to feel so relevant and to tell such new things with it. So yeah, I'm just immensely grateful that this happened. I'm so grateful that all three of us got to see it. Um, I'm so grateful for you know all of you who had texted me and said you need to go see it right now. You got to go see it right now. And even though it was during like the crush of you know Christmas shopping and everything going crazy, like I'm so glad we made the time for it because it is truly one of my favorite movies. Like it's probably top 15 favorite films of all time for me. And I could see it even going up from there. So um, thank you to everybody for listening. Welcome to 2024. We got lots of new stuff coming up, and uh, we're I'm happy we could kick it off with such a great film as this. I have one more point to make that I, I I feel is important, and I could not help connecting Oppenheimer, my experience of Oppenheimer with Godzilla minus one. And Oppenheimer for me was a film about a war happening inside of a man, a war happening inside of a man in in terms of his duty and what he has done, and him trying to make peace with himself, make peace with the decisions that he's made realizing and there's obviously they're two separate films but they have some things in common which is atomic bombs and destruction but oppenheimer is really a a a, a story about a man and the war and certainly like the second half the last hour is about this war inside this man it's not about what you're seeing it's not about him being on trial it is about the war brewing in himself it's not about the japanese people it's not really even about the bomb it's about a decision that he made that he now regrets and it is an important film. I think it's a masterpiece of a film, I, and I will always I will defend it till I, I am dead. But I think that these films work really beautifully together to understand why character is powerful and why what you're seeing, um, what what we might be seeing in a film might be playing out in different levels. It's oftentimes not what the visuals are; it's what the internal story is, and. Godzilla minus one is about the internal story. Yes, there's a monster, but there's a monster raging inside Koichi and it's himself. It's a version of himself and an Oppenheimer. It's very similar. There was, he, and he realizes he released essentially a monster into the world and he had to deal with that monster in himself. And these films work so beautifully. And so I recommend if you love minus one and you haven't seen Oppenheimer, it's a three hour film. It is worth it. I think the, the stories happening with these characters are very similar, but similar in the way that we're in a time right now where we're seeing so much happening in the world, so much destruction, so much trauma, so much, so many horrible things. But what these things are really are a war inside our countries. There are war inside our governments. There are war inside of ourselves. And I think maybe that's why, Minus one speaks so loudly to me because it's speaking into the ether what we're experiencing inside of ourselves or as as communities, as countries, as the earth. So I'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>